This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America, great. you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Appreciate you taking the time to join me on this beautiful Thursday evening here in New York in truly the last bastion of freedom. Because as you may or may not know, the way that freedom is defined in New York today is you can commit a crime with impunity and you're let go the next day. You can commit another crime, you're let go the next day. We are now in a no-cash bail city. So freedom to commit crimes, if you're a citizen... Your freedoms are infringed upon. This is truly the last bastion in de Blasio's New York. As I mentioned, this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. I filled in several times in the past, but if it's uh, your first time listening in, watching on the first, uh, welcome. I'm a fellow at the Claremont Institute, a senior contributor at The Federalist. You can follow all my work at benweingarten.com. Subscribe to my newsletter at bit.ly slash bhw news tell you a little bit later about my first book which comes out at the end of february and this may be an exclusive first i'll be talking about this in any great depth it's sure to be provocative and i know you're going to appreciate this one all right so we're in the midst now of a whole bunch of different major debates over national security and foreign policy this impeachment charade which i don't even want to talk about but i feel we do need to talk about it not because of the specifics but because of the broader significance There's some goings on in immigration that you're really not hearing about anywhere else that we have to talk about. And then, oh, yeah, yesterday, the president just signed the phase one China trade deal. And so today we're going to talk about these topics with what I think are some of the finest minds on these various issues. Coming up just a bit later in this hour, Michael Doran on Iran policy and the Trump Middle East policy more broadly. We'll talk with the great Professor John Eastman about all things immigration, insanity, and some sanity as well. And then last but not least, we'll also talk with Peter Navarro, Dr. Peter Navarro of the Trump administration, one of the so-called hawks on China, to talk about this deal, put it in its greater context, tell us a little bit about some of the details, what are the things we should look for, what's being missed in all the coverage. Because as I've talked about in this program before, China is the greatest threat to our liberty. It is a communist power by definition, and it is not a communist power that is content to just rule its own people with an iron fist. It's hegemonic. It's hegemonic in its ambitions, and not just regionally, but globally. And if a totalitarian power wants to be the dominant world power, necessarily that means it has to shrink our freedom and the freedom of the West more broadly. So we will get to all that and much more today. I want to start with the... Democrats standing with Russia and China and Iran. And and hear me out on this. And North Korea, too, by the way, if you remember when Trump was portrayed as the reckless cowboy before he was portrayed as the naive isolationist, before he was again portrayed as the reckless cowboy when it comes to Iran. Remember, Kim Jong-un was considered the rational actor at the table at one point. Why is it? Why is it that the Democrats stand with all of these adversaries and point the finger at us and say, we are traitors? That really sticks in my craw, and it should stick in your craw, too. Because for the last hundred years, hundred years, Democrats have been the ones appeasing, bribing, 
coddling, trying to find moderates in the world's worst regimes. Those regimes that are truly the most anti-social justice, actually just anti-justice, no modifier needed, regimes in the world. And I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of Nancy Pelosi tweeting out things about Moscow Mitch McConnell and same thing with her friend, I believe one of the impeachment managers, Hakeem Jeffries, congressman from New York. Some congressmen have said that regardless of what happens with impeachment, they're going to continue pursuing Trump-Russia ties and links. You know, the whole premise of the the whole Trump-Russia hoax which was really about trying to take down his presidency through this wedge issue, which, by the way, Hillary Clinton and his team were and her team were talking about within 24 hours after she lost, as has been documented and reported at length. It is all about saying this person's a traitor and therefore illegitimate, therefore dangerous. And therefore, that justifies us taking the most brazen acts possible to undermine him, even if it means undermining everything else that the country is based on. I've said this repeatedly in articles and on air. Who is violating the norms, values, and principles and institutions that they tell us are so essential? It's them. Who is coddling our worst adversaries? It's them. And we have seen some of the most shameful examples of this in light of following the attack that took out Qasem Soleimani, who I always refer to, and I think you should refer to him too, as the world's leading terrorist of the world's leading terror force of the world's leading terrorist regime that funds, runs, orchestrates everything that is done by this world's leading sponsor of terror in Iran and its malocracy. And we should separate, by the way, that regime from the people, some percentage of which are actually out there literally risking their lives because they actually do thirst for real, genuine freedom. Not the freedom that we heard about in Egypt, which was freedom for the Muslim Brotherhood to run roughshod over Christians and all sorts of other ethnic minorities and destroy a country. Not the kind of freedom we heard about in all the other Arab Spring places where the Arab Spring turned into the Arab winter very quickly. No, in Iran, there actually is some percentage of the populace who, like in pre-1979, pre-Islamic revolutionary Iran, actually do yearn for something approximating freedom and actually could be an ally and a partner with America and the West more broadly. I want to go to a couple clips because some of the things that those on the left have been saying post-Soleimani are just absolutely insane. And just like with Nancy Pelosi calling Mitch McConnell Moscow Mitch, and by the way, his preferred name is Cocaine Mitch. He, He said this. So show some respect to the majority leader, Madam Speaker. And when they talk about the whole Russia collusion hoax, you're a traitor, even though it's been disproven, even though it's been proven that this was really Spygate, not Russiagate. Russia was the excuse to spy on an opposing campaign and to weaponize our national security and law enforcement apparatus as part of a long running campaign from before the man was inaugurated to try to take him down. And by the way, before I get to Iran, let me just say. It is the Democrats, it is those who have propagated this Russiagate, Russia collusion narrative, Russia treasonous conspiracy narrative. They are doing far more damage to our country than Vladimir Putin or anyone in Russia could ever hope to do to America. And it's sort of the same thing with what we're seeing with what honestly sound like propagandists for the Iranian malocracy, a malocracy that has been at war with America since 1979. Uh, let's go to clip one. Here, here's John Kerry talking about Iran. 
It's a sad day when the United States of America has to rely on the decision of a regime that we neither like nor trust uh, to have them be the ones who behave uh, somehow in a way that saves Donald Trump from his own decision. They have the ones uh, saving Donald Trump from his own decision. This is a man who literally admitted that Iran deal, the crown jewel of the Obama administration in their second term, non-treaty, imposed upon the American people, imposed upon the world, which we'll talk about at great length. And we'll talk about why Iran deal isn't actually the proper name for the deal, because that doesn't describe at all what it did. It wasn't an Iran nuclear deal. It was fake arms control, actually about propping up the world's leading state sponsor of jihad. John Kerry really has some nerve here because this is a man who himself has admitted back in 2017 some of the more than $100 billion that we released to Iran and that is comprised of sanction relief and all the increased trade activity that Iran got when we pulled off all of these sanctions from them. He himself admitted that some of that money obviously would end up going towards, you guessed it, jihad. So John Kerry was totally fine with the U.S. becoming the world's leading state sponsor of the world's leading state sponsor of jihad. So who the hell is he to make this kind of comment? Iran's saving him. No, Trump is cleaning up the mess that preceded him in a resolute and a prudent way, in a way that Iran never expected. Because we've been bribing them, appeasing them, not calling a spade a spade for decades. And that's under Republicans and Democrats, by the way. All right, I want to go to another clip. Let's go to clip two. And this is a New York Times reporter. I believe her name is Rukmina Kalamachi, applauding Iran. Let's go to clip two. The perception of America right now, I would say in the Middle East, is that we act outside the law. Um, I hear this all the time from Iraqis, from Syrians who do not see a, a legal process behind what we are doing, specifically because of the failure of the Iraq war and the, and the tainted intelligence that led to that point. One of the takeaways of the past week is that we actually saw, in my opinion, Iran act with perhaps more restraint uh, than our own government. The rocket attacks that uh, the missiles that landed on uh, the bases where there were American troops did not not kill anyone. That seems like a wise decision that, uh, that, that they made. Thankfully, our own government has now backed off as well. Restraint. The Iranian regime is the prudent, sound, wise, beneficent. They didn't act out of restraint. They acted because they knew that if they threatened the life and limb of our soldiers or our assets, threatened to destroy them, that a city in Iran would be leveled. Okay. That has not been clear to the Iranian regime. They never expected that from any administration, including this one. They thought they could tap the Trump administration along, continue to poke and prod. All they've been doing is provocations towards the U.S., our partners, and our allies, testing, probing, seeing how far could they push before they got any sort of a reaction from America. And what they got was an overwhelming reaction that destabilized an already wobbling Regime. So why did the mullocracy respond the way that they did with their tail between their legs? Because they knew that we pose an existential threat to their existence for the first time in a long time, certainly since the start of the Obama presidency, and frankly, arguably since probably decades before that. And there's a case to be made that they are on weaker ground today than they've been in at least a decade and, and potentially far more. We'll talk a little bit about that as we proceed in this first hour. But I, I want to point out why it is 
that the left sides with whoever is an enemy of Trump and in this case, all of our adversaries. <laughs> it's not just that they hate Trump. And it's not just that they have this naive worldview that all of our worst enemies can be appeased or at least that that's the better thing to do than actually confront reality as it is and deal with a complicated world that's full of murderous thugs. That not everyone is by nature necessarily good. That there are people that actually do want to infringe upon our daily life and our freedoms, as we've seen time and time again. And that you don't try to appease a bully because that only emboldens that bully. What the Democrats have done is they have, in effect, aided, abetted, and enabled all of our worst adversaries. They are the ones who have sowed discord in our politics to an unprecedented level, I mean, certainly relative to the Obama years. They have corrupted our system of checks and balances and separated powers and everything from impeachment to the way that leftist judges have gone about blocking entire administration policies. One random federal judge, we'll talk about this a little bit later, can stop clearly lawful presidential policies across the entire country. Think about the tyranny of that, that judicial supremacy. They have violated the individual liberties of Americans in the way that they've gone about the entire Russiagate perpetration and then the cover-up, which has been in part impeachment in some ways, uh, the, the, the so-called Mueller special counsel investigation and everything associated with it, the millions of subpoenas that they've issued. They've weaponized our law enforcement mechanism. They've sought to cover up the abuses of the intelligence apparatus and, and law enforcement, and they've cheered on an administrative state that's tried to sabotage the president who gives that administrative state its power. All of these rogue officials and all of these agencies that come out and snipe at the president, they only have power because the president's delegated it to them. Democrats cheer this on. Imagine, you, you can't even imagine, you can't conceive of a scenario because there aren't enough conservatives in the administrative state and they would never act this inappropriately, of course, in the first place. You can't conceive of a scenario where tr the Obama administration did something and he was sabotaged by rogue conservatives conspiring within the administrative state. It would never happen. It would be laughed out of the room. Couldn't even be conceived of. They are the ones who are trying to purge all dissenting views from public life, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Anything that dares challenge the progressive orthodoxy, unacceptable. Voices should be shut out. And why? Why do they side with their adversaries, and why do they, in effect, aid, abet, and enable them with their actions while claiming that we're the traitors and we're the ones undermining the institutions? They think that the America that we understand, that we believe in, that we understand the founders to have crafted for us, built for us. They think that America is inherently evil. It's the scourge of the earth. And so if you hate that which is evil, you believe yourself good, then the only way to fix it is to turn it on its head, repudiate all the principles, run roughshod over them, because the ends justify the means for them. And the ends ultimately are power. It's power for them. They, sometimes they say this outright, and some of these comments from these reporters and Obama administration officials you know, praising the Iranians, it reminded me of a New York Times op-ed writer, Thomas Friedman. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. He wrote back in September 2009 something that sticks with me. It should stick with you, too, and it really represents where the left is. He said, one-party autocracy 
certainly has its drawbacks, but when it is led by a reasonably enlightened group of people, as China is today, it can have great advantages. Beijing wants to make sure that it owns that indus industries and is ordering policies to do it. Our one part from the top down, our one party democracy, quote unquote, is worse. They want they want to rule everything because they don't want us to have a voice because they disagree with this entire experiment and they'll undermine it any and every which way they can, including siding with our worst adversaries. This has been Weingarten for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll be right back after this. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. We've been talking about the left siding with our worst adversaries and a little bit specifically about Iran. And in my next segment, I'm going to interview someone who is, in my view, one of the finest experts on national security and foreign policy, generally in the Middle East, specifically in Iran. I think he's written some of the most prescient, deep, probing, insightful pieces on not only what the strike on Soleimani means for American national security and foreign policy, but also what it means in context of U.S. Middle East policy more broadly and where the Trump administration stands on it. Because a lot of people, frankly, are hysterical when it comes to anything the Trump administration does, but in particular do not understand that there actually is a coherent method to all that we've been doing from the Middle East to China to Western and Eastern Europe and beyond, Russia as well. And so we're going to talk with Michael Duran of the Hudson Institute about a number of these topics. He actually, I'll tease this a little bit, has floated that the Obama administration, as I understand it, may have written love letters to Qasem Soleimani. And I talk in jest here, but actually did communicate directly, potentially, with Soleimani and not to deliver the kind of message that the Trump administration did, which is knock it off or else. We'll talk about that right after this. Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Thanks for listening to The Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we have on the line right now, as I just mentioned, what I think is one of the finest scholars when it comes to national security and foreign policy in the Middle East in general, and Iran in particular. Mike Duran is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He formerly held positions in both the Department of Defense and on the National Security Council during the George W. Bush administration. Mike, thanks, for, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Ben, and thanks for that uh, very generous introduction. Well, it, it's well-deserved and been a longtime fan of your work, and we've discussed many of these issues at length. And I thought Buck's audience deserves to hear from someone who was in a policymaking position, who has grappled with the adversaries that we're dealing with today. And in particular, I, I wanted to start with something that you sort of teased out on Twitter and was later corroborated by Lee Smith, another great writer on national security and foreign policy we've had on the program before, where you discuss the fact that a, a little birdie told you essentially that the Obama administration had drafted some letters to the world's leading terrorist of the world's leading terror force, the Quds force of the world's leading terror regime, uh, the Iranian malocracy. What else can you tell us about that? Well, uh, actually, I don't know much more than that. It's, it was absolutely a little birdie. Um, somebody who uh, I happen to know and who I happen to know is in a position to uh, to to to, under, to know this 
fact firsthand said, hey, did you know that uh, under the Obama administration, we sent letters, plural, to Qasem Soleimani? And I said, no, I didn't know that, but it's very interesting. Um, and so I, uh, I, 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 put, I put that out on, on Twitter. Um, you know, so I pretended to be, a, I, I, I joked that I was an anonymous whistleblower. The joke being that everyone in Washington, D.C. knows that Eric Charamella is the anonymous whistleblower on the Zelensky conversation that, that Trump is being impeached over. Um, and, you know, he's been walking around town all since this thing began and you're not allowed supposedly you know you're not allowed to say his name if you write his name on twitter you get deplatformed and uh, and so on and i thought wow that's really cool i'd like to be a an anonymous whistleblower too uh you know people you either walk into restaurants or people point at you and say hey there's the anonymous whistleblower so uh i'm i'm anonymous here i'm not uh when i talk to you about um when i talk to you about uh the the letters to soleimani I'm not Mike Duran at the Hudson Institute. I'm anonymous. Okay, I'll neither confirm nor deny that I'm Mike Duran as long as we're talking about this. We'll, we'll make sure not to leak your name to the Washington Post and uh, and the Times. And I think it is significant, though, to the extent they did write letters to Soleimani, and it's eminently believable because the administration took, the Obama administration took sanctions off of Soleimani as part of the so-called Iran nuclear deal in the first place. But it's quite an interesting contrast that they were probably writing letters hoping to come to some sort of agreement or accord with Soleimani, uh, whereas the Trump administration, Secretary Pompeo, drafted a letter to Soleimani, which basically said, knock off the malign activities or else. And the or else actually I mean, happened. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the um, let's start with the last point first. The letter that Pompeo sent to uh, uh, to Soleimani actually be, was he did so on the instructions of Donald Trump. I know this for a fact as well. Uh, Trump saw something in the intelligence uh, early on in the administration that worried him. Um, and he said, uh, I see that this guy Soleimani is organizing to kill Americans. I want to send him a letter and I want to put him on notice that if he harms a hair on a single American, um, that there will be immediate and drastic uh, consequences. And um, I don't know how the decision was made. Uh, I guess, you know, maybe his advisor said, actually, Mr. President, I don't think you should be the one talking to Soleimani. So it, it fell to Pompeo. And Pompeo's letter was very short and very sweet, and it basically said, uh, I don't know the exact wording, but it basically said just what, what, I, what I said. If you harm the hair on one American, there will be hell to pay. Um, and that's the origin. That's the origin of the um, uh, of the uh, of the attack on Soleimani. I mean, uh, he was he was warned, and he was warned uh, time and again, and he ignored it, and he paid a price for it. And that's the way it should be. Soleimani is portrayed, and and I think accurately so, as sort of the architect of. Really, in some sense, the, the Shiite crescent and Iran's jihadist activities around the world and also obviously has the blood of hundreds of Americans on his hands and orchestrated the attack on our embassy, which is an act of war. And according to the administration, was planning on orchestrating uh, other ones as well. How significant is the fact that Soleimani no longer walks the face of the earth from the perspective of destabilizing the Iranian malocracy? Oh, it's enormously significant. This is the this is the single most important thing the United States has done in the Middle East 
since the invasion of Iraq. There's no, no doubt about it. Um, first of all, let's just start with him as an individual. You know, when the CIA looks at whether to uh, whether to eliminate an individual, one of the things they ask is, can he be easily replaced? So if we is it going to be just whack-a-mole? We get rid of this guy. Is another one going to pop up? Uh, and uh, uh, and in the case of Soleimani, he was absolutely unique, absolutely indispensable. You know, the the uh, uh, you can almost never say that about somebody that they are indispensable. But he's been in that job for years. He is he was responsible for Iran's policy toward uh, the entire Arab world. He's the de facto head of special forces, head of the CIA. I mean, if you were if we were to map him onto um, uh, onto the American system, he would be the head of special forces, the head of CIA, the head of USAID, and the, uh, and the head of the State Department with regard to all of the Arab world and beyond, Afghanistan uh, as well. Um, Javad Zarif is not the real foreign minister. He's the errand boy of Qasem Soleimani. Uh, now, he's lieutenant general. He's, he's the head of the Quds Force of the IRGC, so on the org chart, the head of the IRGC was his commanding officer, but that was not the case. He was an independent force. He had a direct line to the supreme leader. Um, he had been. He was the architect of this policy of creating militias across the Arab world and then distributing to those militias uh, uh, precision-guided weaponry, completely with the goal of undermining the U.S. order in the region by undermining Amer America's allies. And he was also putting a noose around uh, the neck of, of, uh, of Israel. So getting rid of him was, was and just, just in that respect, was fantastic. But, it, uh, but if, I gotta, if I can have a second, I'll, I'll add a couple of other reasons why this was, was, was important. Go ahead. So uh, number two... Trump has totally changed the game. Up until now, for the last three presidents, when we have dealt with Iran, we have always played the game on Iran's terms. That is that we know that Iran was building these militias, Hezbollah, the Houthis, um, the, 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 the five or six major militias they've got in Iraq and so on, and that, and, that, and that those militias are taking orders from Tehran. But when those militias would behave, misbehave, we would always we would always uh, respond weakly against the militias as if we didn't know that Tehran was actually pulling the strings. Trump has said, I'm not playing that game anymore. I'm not going to play this game on your terms. I know you're in charge, and I'm going to hold you responsible for what you're, you're doing. That's a strategic shift by U.S. policy. And it's amazing the effect it has had in a very short period of time because now all of a sudden, Trump has cut Iran down to size. Iran is not as powerful as the United States, and yet we've been treating it like an equal. You know, John Kerry sat uh, uh, sat in Vienna week after week after week opposite <laughs> the wreath like they were uh, like, like we were equal powers. And Trump has shown, no, actually, you're a small, weak power, and we are a superpower. And uh, and if you bite our ankles too hard, we're going to kick you in the in the teeth, which is exactly what he did. And everyone in the region sees that, and they're all reacting to it. So we we have reinvigoration of the of the uh, uh, of the the protests in Iran, of the of the anti-Iranian protests in Iraq, and of the protests in, in in Lebanon, among other things. I mean, everyone everyone in the region immediately felt that the balance of power shifted toward the United States. And if I could just make one last point, yes. I'll make it very briefly. 
We also took out in that attack on Soleimani a number of other individuals, but one really particularly stands out, and that's al-Muhandis, who was Iran's number one guy in Iraq. Simply taking out Muhandis would have been a very big deal. Uh, we've kind of, he, he's kind of been forgotten in the discussion of this because Soleimani was so huge. But the effect of this on, for, for the U.S. relations with Iraq are huge. So, you know, you mentioned one point that I want to kind of hone in on, which is the why. You said the last three administrations have effectively looked the other way, been willfully blind, uh, refused to poke the bear when it comes to Iran. And I think arguably, and, and you'd probably agree, really this dates back to both Carter and Reagan, actually. Uh, how do you explain the fact that for all this time we've been so engaged in the Middle East, in all of these sectarian squabbles? How is it that Iran has gotten off scot-free the entire time? What is the explanation within our national security and foreign policy establishment for why we've pursued the path that we have? You know, I, um, the, the simple answer is America has a fantasy of returning with the, with the Islamic Republic, of returning to the relationship it had under the Shah. Um, and it has been telling itself since Reagan, I mean, you're 100 percent correct about that. Since Reagan, it's been telling itself that Iran is going to moderate. It's going to become a normal country under the Islamic Republic is going to become a normal country just looking after its interests. And we can come to an accommodation with it. That was the whole that was the whole thesis behind the Reagan's uh, uh, arms for hostages that we, we were we were looking we the, the arms, you know, Reagan famously went on the. Uh, on primetime television and told the American people, you know, a, a couple of months ago, I told you, American people, that I did not trade arms for hostages. He said, my, my, uh, uh, my intentions um, and my gut, or I can't remember the exact words, but I, I, still tell my, I still feel like I didn't do that, but I've looked at the facts, and this is what happened. And at the time, I was a student, and I, and I heard Reagan say this, and I thought, how could you not know? But actually, um, uh, I, he was, it, it was true. He didn't, he didn't know that he had done that because the goal of sending the arms to the Iranians was during the Iran-Iraq war and their military was supplied by, it was all American equipment and they, they needed spare parts. The goal was not to give them spare parts. The goal was to use the delivery of the spare parts to find the moderates in Tehran with whom we could talk so we could get back to the old relationship that we used to have. So this is a bipartisan American dream. Um, it is the, it is, it's stronger today on the left than it is on the right, but you can find it in the, in the Republican sphere as, as well. And it, it is the source of these letters that I, I believe we don't, we won't know until they're declassified um, if they ever will be, but that's the source of the letters that, that uh, I believe uh, I presume that Obama sent the Obama administration sent to Soleimani. The Obama administration believed that Solema, that that the U.S. and and Iran shared a couple of key vital interests. Um, one was the stability of Iraq, and two was fighting ISIS. I don't uh, don't need to go into the details. I don't agree with either of those presumptions, but they're very um, they're very deep in the foreign policy establishment that we have overlapping interests with Iran, and if we just show the Iranians that we're not hostile to them, then we can unlock the potential for cooperation that these shared interests uh, represent. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. We'll be back with Mike Duran just after this. 
You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show, and we're back with Mike Duran talking about Iran, Middle East policy, more Broadway. We only have a couple minutes here, Mike, and we've been talking about the sea change that has transpired, not just with Iran, but with the Middle East. Frankly, it's definitely heard by the North Koreans. I'm sure it's heard in Beijing as well. A a, a couple sort of fundamental questions. Uh, One, how weak is the Iranian regime today? And to the extent it was to fall tomorrow, do you believe the Trump administration has devised contingency plans so that America's national interest is best served should that happen? Uh, I don't know how weak it is. It's, the simple answer is I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very reluctant to say that, uh, that, a, that a regime is going to fall. You know, I watched the Syrian regime very closely. Um, and, um, and, you know, everyone predicted it was going to fall weeks, months, whatever, and it never did. And, of course, the Russians stepped in to help it. You know, if it looked like Tehran was really about to collapse completely, it wouldn't surprise me if we saw the Chinese and the Russians get involved. We may, we may not. Um, uh, so uh, it's clearly, I mean, the one thing you can say for sure is that it has a legitimacy crisis uh, of the, the likes of which it has never seen before. Um, the, the vast majority of Iranians do not regard it, you know, do not really support it. But it has, uh, you know, this coercive apparatus that uh, you know, people, you know, it's willing to shoot people who want to topple it. And, uh, and some significant percentage of the population feels that their livelihood, if not their lives, are bound up in the continuation of the, um, of the regime. So, you know, it, I don't know how long can it limp along like this. I'm, 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 really, not, I'm really not sure. Does the U.S. have contingency plans? I would, uh, uh, you know, you never know, but I, I would doubt it uh, just because I don't think the Trump administration was thinking. You know, it hasn't had the – its goal has not been to topple the regime. Its goal has been to weaken the regime in order to get a deal, particularly over the nuclear question. Um, and, but, but by just a little bit of you know, strategic uh, application of American force – Trump has shown the regime to be weaker than I think most people thought it was. Um, and so now all of a sudden we have this question about, well, what if it goes? I, I doubt anyone's thought that through. Uh, to those who say, lastly, to those who say that China is the biggest threat of all, which I agree with, by the way, uh, Iran is a threat. China is the greatest nation state threat to American liberty. And they say, well, what is really our interest in the Middle East when you have this massive power that's looming. What is your best argument to them that, no, we actually do have an interest in the Middle East in general, in an Iran situation that is in America's national interest in particular, given the sort of greater challenges that loom over the short, medium, and long term? I think it's all about China, actually. Uh, uh, what's going what's gonna to happen uh, if we're not careful is that China is going to come in and become the primary supporter, or maybe China and Russia together, of the Iranian regime, um, the Iranian regime's immediate goal is to drive the United States out of the Persian Gulf and to, and to take over control, not necessarily absolute ownership, but control of the vast oil resources of the Gulf. That's what it wants. The, the target of the Iranians is Saudi Arabia. They want to take over the they want to control the oil resources of the Gulf. And then they, they, the Iranians themselves see themselves as the leaders of the Islamic world. They want to take over the holy sites in in Saudi Arabia. Now, if the if 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 China and its ally Iran, if they were to uh, ally together, or Russia, China, and Iran as a block, uh, 
then and control the oil resources of the Gulf, then they control the oil resources of Europe. And they'll start using that privileged position um, as the main provider of oil to Europe to start weakening the U.S.-European uh, bond. And we would have one dominant power in on the Eurasian landmass, China. And that's what we want to avoid. We want to avoid China just completely owning all of Eurasia. That's not good for democracy in America. We've been speaking with Mike Duran, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and I think one of the finest minds when it comes to U.S. national security and foreign policy. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. And this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We're back right after this. Thanks for listening to The Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And the big news yesterday, beyond the impeachment charade, which you've already talked about, is that the Trump administration signed a monumental phase one trade deal with China. And we're going to talk a little bit later in the hour with one of those who was most influential in pushing this administration and representing this administration's tough line on the Chinese Communist Party regime, a tougher line than has ever been pushed since we formally opened relations with China, really beginning with Nixon back in 72 which has been, in my view, the most fundamental, most most important, long-term, critical, and monumental change in U.S. national security and foreign policy, to recognize the nature of the China competition, the China threat, China's adversarial nature, and actually begin to turn the ship of state around because we haven't aided, abetted, enabled, emboldened this malevolent Chinese Communist Party for decades. To put that deal in context, I think we need to talk a little bit about what is the nature of the Chinese Communist Party regime, because the nature of the regime at the end of the day is what matters even more sometimes than what the words are on a piece of paper. And you could say the same thing, for example, with the quote unquote Iran nuclear deal, which we discussed in part already. You can't have a deal with the mullahs that they will abide by in any sense unless they really feel that their livelihood is at stake and the alternative is utter destruction. I'm not saying it's analogous with China, but what I am saying is that the regime matters above all else, whatever contingencies are, whatever has been put in writing on paper. Honoring a deal requires two honorable parties to it. And so you have to understand this deal in context of that nature of an expansionist, imperialist, frankly, often malign, deceptive regime that is the Chinese Communist Party regime. And so let's talk a little bit about what their true core aims are. Their, their true core aims are expand their totalitarian rule so that, first of all, the Chinese Communist Party can survive in perpetuity. And second, that it can put forth its prerogatives and impose them upon their own people, those in their near abroad, quote unquote, and that includes Taiwan, that includes Hong Kong, that includes others as well, and ultimately expand their power so that they are not just the regional hegemon, but the global hegemon. And what would that mean? I mean that China is not only rich, strong, and powerful, but that every other nation effectively bends to China's rule. And the, the Trump administration has spoken quite openly and honestly about the nature of this regime. 
The human rights violations that this regime has engaged in are impactful not because human rights are necessarily the number one American interest when it comes to foreign powers and how we best deal with them. We have to deal with the world as it is, not as we wish it to be, but because it tells you something about the way China, the Chinese Communist Party rules its own people and how it will ultimately treat others as its power expands. And its ability to project that power expands globally through things like One Belt, One Road and other initiatives that we've spoken about in prior episodes. There are stories of mass forced organ harvesting from prisoners. There's a one child policy, which if you, if you don't know about, I've written a review of an amazing, harrowing documentary on China's one child policy that to Amazon's credit, I believe, is being distributed through Amazon which talks about the forced abortions, effectively the Chinese Communist Party ripping children away from their parents and leaving them to die on the roadsides. Unthinkable horrors. That's the Chinese Communist Party. Turning the guns on the protesters in Hong Kong and trying to force extradition so that China can effectively take prisoner those who are supposed to be able to live in the relatively free, although increasingly shrinking, relatively free Hong Kong that China is supposed to respect. Taiwan. China has threatened invasion of Taiwan. That's why we supply Taiwan with sophisticated weaponry to deter China from seeking to, quote unquote, reunify a part of China that's not theirs. Threatening foreign ambassadors and other officials threatening dissidents in the Chinese diaspora around the world that they will potentially injure, imprison, otherwise punish their families that are back on the mainland should you speak out against the Chinese Communist Party abroad. That's the nature of the regime that we're dealing with. Two other recent stories caught my eye that really get to the core of what the Chinese Communist Party is about. Here's one headline, was believe, I believe from LifeSite News. Chinese government demands Christians use religion to, quote, spread Communist Party principles. Everything serves the party, including religion. And by the way, religion, of course, during the Cold War was considered by many to be the antidote to the Soviet Union and its expansionist ideology. So, of course, any competing worldview is going to be something that, if you're the Chinese authorities, you have to clamp down on because you cannot tolerate any sort of dissent, any sort of cracks in the veneer that they've built. And by some measures, Christianity is the fastest growing religion in China with millions, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of members. And that's not even necessarily including those who practice underground. So this is significant. And the article says, new draconian rules for religious groups are set to go into place in China requiring that they spread Communist Party principles. China's totalitarian government promulgated new rules on December 30 that will place virtually all aspects of religious life under the control of the Communist Party. The administrative measures consist of six chapters and 41 articles governing the, quote, organization, function, supervision, and management of religious groups which could in, would include religious doctrine, annual and daily activities, and rallies. The new rule is going to force on February 1 and come as part of a growing crackdown by Chinese communists on religion. And 
Many religious minorities have been persecuted. We didn't talk about the biggest human rights violation of all, which is the actual gulag, 21st century gulags that have been constructed in the Xinjiang province, where millions in total of Uyghur Muslim ethnic minorities reside, of which at least a million and probably more, I would guess, are held in effectively modern-day gulags because of their faith, under the guise of potentially posing a threat, a national security threat, but in reality because they pose a threat because they might believe something that conflicts with Chinese Communist Party principles. But religion has to be bent to support the party because the party resides above all else, and if not, it has to be crushed with an iron fist. And when you infringe upon someone's faith and their conscience, that tells you a heck of a lot about the nature of the authorities that you're dealing with. Now, in some ways, I would argue it shows fragility. If you can't tolerate competing or dissenting views, then how strong can you really be? On the other hand, the fact that they can do this and then put on top of it a massive police state apparatus and their social credit scores where they govern how good of a citizen you are based upon how closely you hew to Communist Party principles, it's scary that any government could have that power and that they're exporting that technology to many of the other malevolent regimes that they do business with around the world should scare us. And then, of course, that they're the ones that are the leaders in 5G technology, which is going to be the network that serves as the backbone of basically all information transfer and communications throughout the world, including among our allies. Can you trust a regime that has a social credit score for its citizens, watches their every move and grades them based upon how well they're checking the party boxes? You want to put them in charge? of all global telecommunications and information transfer. This is the Chinese regime. And then a much smaller example, but that I think gets also to the nature of not just this Communist Party, but the way that Communist parties have been really forever. This is from Ryan Saavedra in The Daily Wire. Headline, Communist China, private ownership of guns in U.S. Serious problem must change. Saavedra says, Communist China, which currently has millions of people locked away in concentration camps, said in state-controlled media this week that the Second Amendment is a quote-unquote serious problem, and that there needs to be quote-unquote change in how the American public views private ownership of guns. The Global Times, which is Chinese state-run media, published the op-ed after a good guy with a gun in Texas stopped a shooting in a church. China mocked the United States, saying that, quote, shootings are shocking in a U.S. allegedly governed by law. And he quotes a little bit from the article, and it's worth quoting in part also just to look at the parallels between their propaganda media and our propaganda media. So the article says, private gun ownership is a tradition from the early days of the founding of the U.S. In a modern society, the problems created by this tradition have already exceeded the benefits. It's problematic. American society has already seen serious problems caused by the private ownership of guns, but their massive number has contributed to an enormous inertia. Many interest groups have benefited from it, and some ordinary people have truly gained a sense of safety. To change this habit, which has lasted hundreds of years, tremendous political courage and a rearrangement of interests is required. Mike Bloomberg agrees. Facts have proved that the U.S. system is unable to handle the intricacies of countless issues around guns, including politics, economics, law and order, and public psychology. 
The country can neither manage the safe storage and use of so many guns owned by ordinary people, nor can it establish a new national system that bans or strictly restricts guns. It cannot even form, it cannot even form an overwhelming opinion regarding gun issues. And then Saavedra, to his credit, writes here, China's attack on the Second Amendment comes after Hong Kong protesters have requested to have their own Second Amendment rights. Gee, I wonder why. So they can defend themselves from the oppressive communist Chinese government. And this is also after the Wall Street Journal reported that following in the footsteps of Mao Zedong, during a two-day meeting that ended last month by Mr. Xi, the party's 25-member Politburo hailed his policies as visionary and described him as the Renmin Wingshu, or People's Leader, a designation that directly echoes an accolade most closely associated with Communist China's founder, Mao Zedong. And of course, like Mao Zedong, effectively, Xi has absolute power. He is chairman of the party for life. First, there's the use of the propaganda, and the Chinese Communist Party always says, we want to treat every nation with mutual respect and admiration, respect for sovereignty. We don't meddle in others' foreign affairs. Okay, well, who are you to be commenting on our Second Amendment in your propaganda rag that's in English so the entire world can read it and it's a propaganda coup for you? More importantly is the fundamental issue of what are Second Amendment rights at core actually about? At, at core, the entire tradition in Western civilization, in particular in the Anglosphere, is about the right to self-defense, self-preservation, an essential right. And that's self-preservation both in nature and it's self-preservation in your political sphere. China, of course, what they don't tell you has some of the most restrictive gun laws in the entire world. It's almost impossible to own firearms there as an individual. Why is that the case? Because the regime can't tolerate it. Just like they can't tolerate our First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom to debate and argue in an actual open marketplace of ideas, they can't tolerate you being able to defend yourself against any tyranny, again, whether in nature or the tyranny of an oppressive government. China doesn't want its people to have the right to defend their lives and their liberties because they don't believe that life and liberty trump their tyrannical iron communist party fist. This article is important, this propaganda is important because it gets to the core, which is that China doesn't believe in any rights as we understand them in the West, not for its people and not for those that it interacts with either. And that's why in the past, the Chinese Communist Party has lied, cheated, and stolen. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll be back right after this. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we've been talking about the nature of the Chinese Communist Party, which controls all of China, its businesses, its people, their right to bear arms or not, as the case may be their lack of any sorts of the civil liberties that we enjoy in America. And what I've argued is that you have to keep this context in mind when it comes to all of the United States' official dealings with Chinese Communist Party officials and even with any of their private, quote-unquote, private sector actors, because in reality there is, no, there is no distinction between private and public there. And so we need to be very clear-eyed about the nature of it. 
And that is a central context in terms of having a healthy bit of caution and skepticism when it comes to anything with China. And I believe the administration completely gets this, not only because of the way that the administration has described the nature of the Chinese Communist Party and its aims in the past, but by dint of its entire policy towards the Chinese Communist Party, speaking openly and honestly about the way that they've abused and ripped off America. In fact, even President Trump during the signing ceremony yesterday alluded to some of those issues. He basically said, cover your ears, Chinese representatives, while I talk about the truth here. Also bears noting in this deal that we're about to talk with Peter Navarro about, tariffs still remain on China. And it's an important point, by the way, to note, you know, the entire world told us, and look, I'm a, a devotee of free enterprise economics, uh, a, a longtime defender of capitalism. Uh, tariffs run in the face of capitalism to the extent that you have parties that are all really trading on an open and honest playing field, you know, where there's comparative advantage and you're good at this, producing this, you're good at producing this. We trade, everyone ends up better off. Let's not basically put a tax on products and then get into a war over it and then you're taxing this, you're taxing televisions and I'm taxing soybeans. The difference here, the difference is that we have not been operating on anything remotely close to a level playing field. And in fact, we have built the entire world trade, financial architecture, global enterprise writ large is attributable to American institutions and largely American companies, American technologies, American led policies. We invited China to operate in that system under the naive view, the disastrous view that economic liberalization would ultimately lead to political liberalization, or maybe for the more cynical people because they felt that China's a really big marketplace and we better take advantage of it while the getting is good or someone else will. Consequences potentially to U.S. national interest be damned. And maybe, look, maybe they didn't even conceive of the idea that China could end up as strong and as powerful and bellicose increasingly as it has become. Tariffs, though, they told us, you can't impose tariffs. We can't win a trade war. And the Trump administration said, well, actually, we can win trade wars. It's going to be easy. And the fact of the matter is they have been right pretty much every single time in terms of using tariffs as a tool for leverage, not for tariffs in and of themselves, not because the administration loves the idea of the protectionism, but because the administration understands it is a blunt tool that we, we're the biggest economy in the world, by a large measure of magnitude, can withstand and which will bring parties to the table so that they will no longer rip us off and have unfair trade and unfree trade and take advantage of us because we let the world take advantage of us in every single possible realm. And China, of course, is the biggest actor of all in the way of those who have taken advantage of us. As I said before, lying, cheating, stealing their way after being given entree into this amazing global economy that America is the backbone of, they steal hundreds of billions of dollars in intellectual property from us. They counterfeit goods. They've flooded our soil with fentanyl in places that have been hollowed out and destroyed in no small part because of the offshoring of jobs to China, because China is able to compete by paying people nothing. Not only that, forced technology transfer. You can't do business in China unless China basically gets the rights to all of the crown jewels of your company. It's unfair. It's gone on for so long, and it has enabled China to become a serious competitor to America. And again, one that based on its nature, 
threatens our liberty. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Back right after this. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we talked a little bit about the Democratic Party's ends justify the means sort of perspective. And that has a way of permeating not just our political system, but also our culture, our society, our economic institutions, really every facet of our lives because leftism demands control over every part of our lives, sort of like with the Chinese and the Chinese Communist Party. It's a similar sort of all-encompassing totalitarian in the sense of controlling everything ethos. And the scary thing is when you see it seep into your culture such that ultimately we have a society that's completely divided in almost every single facet. And when you really think about it in America today, I mean, what does unite people in the who live on the coast and people who live everywhere else? When I walk around the streets in New York, ideologically, I'm completely different from everyone around me 99.999% of the time. We disagree on a whole host of subjects. Uh, Really, I've thought about this. Maybe the only uniting institution in America today, beyond the fact that the military is still overwhelmingly loved and revered and respected, the only institution certainly related to the government that's respected at this point, is sports. I, I mean, can you think of something else that unites people from all walks of life, from every corner of the country, whether it's the smallest agrarian town or the biggest urban center? That's pretty much it. It's sports. Can a country really survive long term when it is so torn? And I don't want to I don't want to sort of exaggerate the divide in America because look, we fought a civil war in the 60s. Tensions were as high as they've been at probably at any time since the civil war. There have been all sorts of periods of strife, of partisanship, of animus and tension within our culture, within our society, and we've been divided and at each other's throats from the beginning. I mean, when people talk about the viciousness of the press today, and the press is vicious, and the press does lie and cheat, and effectively, as I usually argue, serves as the communications arm of the Democratic Party in many respects. But the press, it used to be that you had party newspapers. The newspapers were known as party-associated publications. I mean, in some ways, it was better then because it was more transparent. But they would allege all sorts of asinine things uh, within those publications. We were remarkably torn as a country. But again, the difference is that at core, there were certain things that did unite us, whether it was our understanding of the founding, our understanding of our history, our understanding of our heritage, our understanding of the fundamental rights and responsibilities that we were built on, even just simple common virtue, views on morality, the importance of tradition, to having a functional society where we could disagree vigorously on any number of political issues but separate the political issues from the things that at core united us. The left can't tolerate that. We as conservatives, we debate them on any number of issues, and I would argue that the average conservative knows a lot more about the left's positions than the left knows about our positions because they believe that their positions have to predominate by, by hook or by crook. Again, though, what gets more insidious is when you have every element of your society invaded by politics. And 
For the latest example of this, there was a story out this week that was big in kind of the financial world, dominated in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. BlackRock, which is the largest investment management company in the world in terms of the amount of money that it manages, about $7 trillion in assets that it helps invest on people's behalf or that people invest through BlackRock. They laid out a whole slew of initiatives under what's called ESG. Now, what is ESG? Environmental, social, and governance-focused initiatives. That's become a huge thing in the financial world. If you want to invest in basically green, friendly companies, if you want to invest in companies that value, quote-unquote, diversity, not you know in terms of the way of thought, but in terms of skin pigmentation, if you want to support companies that are truly progressive, social justice warriors, ESG are usually the kinds of vehicles. You can invest in some sort of fund that has a portfolio of companies that are all social justice warrior companies. And that has become a massive industry in financial services. BlackRock, the biggest asset manager in the world, is one of the leaders in ESG. And this week... They laid out a slew of initiatives on stated environmentalist grounds, so under sustainability and environmentalism in ESG. Slew of initiatives where not only will they be following these initiatives and basically imposing their progressive views on you know all of their employees, but also on all of the companies and other assets that they invest in. So, invest in. so in other words, they will push, if through BlackRock their investors own X percent of a company. Let's say that company is an energy company and that company isn't a clean energy company. They'll push the board to get more clean. And they can do that because they effectively control the money. I mean, follow the money in that company. So let's look at what some of these initiatives are. Their CEO wrote to other CEOs, We don't yet know which predictions about the climate will be most accurate, nor what effects we have failed to consider. But there's no denying the direction we are heading. Every government, company, and shareholder must confront climate change, unquote. So the controller of more assets under management than any investment manager in the world is saying climate change. It's fact. World's going to end in, uh, I guess, 11 years probably. They used to say 12, but we're a year in the future now. Investing decisions should be made on that basis. Basically, our entire society should be organized around that. And that's not a government talking. This is the private sector talking. A private sector company that effectively, through all of the different assets that you can invest in, the stocks, bonds, and everything else that one, either an individual or a big pension fund or an endowment, college endowment, or your company can invest in through BlackRock, You can invest in everything through BlackRock. Basically, the entire global market you can invest in through them. So when BlackRock says, basically, toe the party line and we're going to nudge the companies that do any business with us, which is basically every company, towards towing their environmentalist line, that's sort of a scary state of play. He goes on another letter to BlackRock clients to say, we believe that sustainability should be our new standard for investing. Okay, well, look, as a private sector company, they are more than welcome to do whatever they want. I mean, one of the proposals is they're going to get out of investing in any businesses that generate meaningful amounts of revenue from thermal coal production. 
They're going to kick it out of the portfolios that they offer to people. Uh, they're going to push clients to adhere to the company's priorities, such as UN Sustainable Development Goals, such as gender equality and affordable and clean energy. They're going to substantially increase the number of social justice-friendly investment offerings. Look, they're welcome to do this stuff. And they've also, by the way, joined the Climate Action 100 Plus, which engages with companies to improve climate disclosure and align business strategy with the goals of the Paris Agreement. Is that what you think private sector companies should be in the business of? Look, again, I don't begrudge them. They can put forth whatever view they want. And in a free marketplace, thank God, you can move elsewhere. If you don't like what the CEOs stand for, if you don't like their company policies... Take your money elsewhere, protest them, boycott them if you want. That's fine. But recognize how much of the marketplace this actually impacts. Because if we're talking about $7 trillion worth of wealth invested across a whole slew of different companies, you can damn well be sure this is going to impact any number of companies. And if you don't tow the party line, your stock is going to crater. That's meaningful. So we see this on a micro level, this sort of control with the cancel culture, where if you don't toe the progressive line, you're thrown out. Your, your ability to live, work, function in society is basically over. We've seen, for example, that payment processing companies like PayPal and the like will kick people off of their services who are funded by people like you and me uh, to be able to produce content that a major corporation won't allow them to produce, again, because it flouts PC norms. Kicked off, can't make a living, can't use the payment processing company. This is far bigger. I mean, this is, again, $7 trillion almost in assets under management. Toe the party line. This should really scare us, in my opinion. It's not just about this particular move, and it's not just about the fact that, look, you know, live and let live. If, if they want to be woke capital, they can be woke capital, okay? They can deal with the consequences of that. But there are a couple broader points to be made. One is the fact that this is representative of where corporate America is, where they have basically entire sections that are dedicated to making sure that you don't run afoul of political correctness and you don't run afoul of the progressive sort of ethos that dominates in all of our elite institutions, in our colleges, in our media, in, in every as, facet of society that is responsible for imparting views to people and telling people how they should think. So it should scare us from the perspective of this is but one massive, granted, company. But what do you think the management teams look like at pretty much all of the major corporations? And do you think they care more about the people that they have their cocktail parties with, who run the schools that they send their kids to, their attorneys, all the senior management at these companies, do you think that they care more about you, the deplorable? Or do you think they care more about the people that they're friends with and they think everyone else thinks like? Because they think that their views, which are held by really like 10 or 20% of the country, are actually the mainstream views, and that the real mainstream views in the country that the forgotten man in this country holds, traditions they hold dear, are fringe. I want to talk a little bit more about woke capital, and we'll do so right after this short break. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Back right after this. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And before the break, we were talking a little bit about woke capital. And this is truly woke capital because investment managers are a key part of sort of the capital markets and the financial industry. And basically, where funds get directed in our economy that tells us what companies grow and succeed and which companies fail. And I was talking about the significance of this particular company, BlackRock, as the biggest asset manager in the world. And they're also one of 181, maybe plus employers, who signed on to an agreement, which basically said that companies no longer, their, their primary focus is no longer creating value for their owners, their shareholders, but to serving all stakeholders. They signed on to this agreement, changing what the principles of business are. The business should be about protecting the environment by embracing sustainable practices across our businesses. That is, BlackRock and basically all of the biggest companies in a bunch of different sectors agreed it's not about making money for your owners anymore and serving your owners. It's in part about serving environmental causes. But there's a hypocrisy in this, and it actually links back to uh, what we've been discussing and will continue to be discussing over the next couple of days, actually. China and U.S.-China policy. Here's the hook. Okay, to the extent that BlackRock and these other companies are sustainability-driven and they're true believers in their principles, how do they square that with the exposure that they and many of these other companies have to the world's biggest polluter in China? Well, let me explain this a little more. BlackRock, for example, has expanded its offerings of China-specific investment vehicles. So you, or again, a big pension fund or an endowment, can invest more and more money in big Chinese companies, probably companies that are polluters. Or if not, at least, they're companies that prop up a Chinese Communist Party regime that allows companies to pollute and destroy the environment there. But you haven't really heard of any, any of these big companies saying, we will no longer do business with the China and the Chinese market due to their lack of sustainable practices in their businesses. As I said, investors basically not only underwrite some percentage of the companies that pollute, they effectively prop up this regime that enables that pollution. So can you really call yourself a proponent of environmental justice and claim you care about sustainability if with one hand you say we're going to punish basically non-Chinese companies that don't hew to our environmental principles, but we're going to actually increase our investment holdings and offerings in Chinese companies? And it's not just the environmental hypocrisy here. It's also investing in other non-social justice warrior friendly firms, like, for example, Hikvision. Hikvision is a China-based in Hangzhou business that produces the cameras that surveil the minority Uyghur Muslim population that is being held in modern-day gulags in China's Xinjiang province. Where's woke capital on that? You know, we saw this with Nike, where, God forbid, a senior executive for the Houston Rockets basketball team comes out and says something of pro-Hong Kong, and the backlash is swift because Nike has all their profits tied to doing business with China. They get awfully quiet when it might impact their bottom line with their social justice warriordom. I want to see all the financial services companies come out and say, we're not going to do business with China because they flout progressive norms, values, and principles. But you won't see it. And why won't you see it? Because at the end of the day, it is profits that matter. It's, profit that's matter. it's profits that matter. And oh, by the way, it goes beyond that because 
these ESG products, these sustainability products that they offer and this push for green companies, I'll bet you find in a lot of ways it's a racket because of those companies that fit this ESG, environmentalism, sustainable, uh, social, social governance, and the like, what percentage of those companies receive crony capitalist benefits? It's, re- it's not even woke capital. It's more like woke crony capital. How many of them receive huge subsidies from the government to basically keep afloat companies that otherwise wouldn't be able to exist in the free marketplace because they can't compete with the traditional industries that we've had in this country? What percentage of them get tax breaks and write-offs? What percentage of them have their business almost completely tied to government support in one way or another? And then, oh, by the way, factor in that some of these pensions and other government-associated investors, including governments themselves and sovereign wealth funds, invest through places like BlackRock. They're sort of playing both sides because on the one hand, the government supports all these policies. And then on the other hand, the government is investing those pension funds in the very companies that benefit from those government policies. So we should call a spade a spade when it comes to woke capital, whether it's a big asset manager or Nike or anyone else. Really, at the end of the day, it's about profits. Let's not call it woke capital. Let's call it woke crony capital. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to The Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Senator Sanders, I do want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? I disagreed. Bernie is my friend, and I am not here to try to fight with Bernie. But look, this question about whether or not a woman can be president has been raised, and it's time for us to attack it head on. Um, And I think the best way to talk about who can win is by looking at people's winning record. So can a woman beat Donald Trump? Look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. The only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women. I think you called me a liar on national TV. I think you called me a liar on national TV. Let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion? We'll have that discussion. You called me a liar. You told me. All right, let's not do it now. I don't want to get in the middle of it. I just want to say hi, Bernie. Yeah, good. Okay. If you haven't seen it, you've got to see that last clip with the Curb Your Enthusiasm music dubbed over it. And not only because of the Larry David, Bernie Sanders likeness, but it's just too perfect for that whole episode. So you've probably been following this. It's almost getting annoying at this point. The uh, mini confrontation, what I would call sort of an Iran-Iraq war, which you really don't want to get in the way of between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, CNN, of course, it seems probably leaked from the Warren camp or those close to the Warren camp. Uh, Comments from Bernie saying that a a woman couldn't be president uh, with respect to Elizabeth Warren, I believe, back in 2018. Then Bernie, during the debate the other night, gets asked, you know, essentially a do you beat your wife sort of question effectively, especially for the Democratic field. Uh, He denies it. But then, of course, they act in asking Warren about it as if he didn't just deny it. Uh, And then after when it shouldn't have been recorded, there's a hot mic uh, with this whole exchange between Bernie and Warren. And I I think we have to stop and ask ourselves for a minute 
Why is it that the long knives, at least at CNN, seem to be out for Bernie Sanders? You know, he claimed that the 2016 primary with Hillary Clinton was rigged in her favor, and I think that's absolutely the case, and there's plenty of empirical evidence to show it. Why now? You know, their ideas, Bernie versus Warren's ideas, are not all that different. She just polishes it with a more sort of academic and serious kind of face to it more rigorous and substantive uh, garbage. But why are the long knives out for him? I would suggest the long knives are out for Bernie because they recognize that he is a serious threat to win this thing. You know, Bernie, it it looks like Biden is going to sort of cruise to the finish, even though he really has been incoherent largely for almost the entire set of debates. He's wrong. He's been wrong on every single issue in public life that matters. He represented a terrible administration that preceded this one. You know, and look at look at what is the substance of the Democratic message. It's, you know, let's keep terrorists alive, Soleimani. Let's bribe and appease adversary regimes, Iran. China isn't a problem, says Joe Biden. And then he has the gall to go out there and attack this phase one China trade deal that we'll be talking about a little bit later this evening. Socialized medicine. Open borders, infanticide, take an economy that's rip-roaring from the perspective of job growth and wage growth and expansion in industries that had been hollowed out and destroyed in the past, repatriation of something like a trillion dollars, I believe, in wealth back to America, confronting our enemies, which is in our economic and national security interest. That's their message. All, No matter who their nominee is, he's going to be pulled in that direction at the very least, to win the primary. You know, Biden doesn't really have any beliefs as far as I can tell. So he's going to be a kind of weak representative of the leftist animating factors that are really what's driving this entire Democratic Party, which is why we're having impeachment right now in the first place, which is why Nancy Pelosi has completely caved to the squad and almost every single issue imaginable. Why are the long knives out for Bernie? Because he actually believes in this stuff. It represents where the energy in the party is, and he has a real chance to win it. That's the thing. He has a real chance to win it. So this party that talks about their concern for democracy, well, if he is the candidate that prevails in their democratic, Democrat process, shouldn't they let him go? I think they recognize the powers that be, their political establishment recognizes that Bernie could likely be suicide for them. But you know what separates Bernie from the other candidates is that he actually believes the communist sort of rhetoric. He's got communists working for his team. You've probably seen the the Gulag video that came out of one of his staffers recently. He's got Islamists on his team like Linda Sarsour, not to mention Ilhan Omar and the like. The long knives are out because they think he's serious. And then you notice, and and I believe Buck might have talked about this yesterday. Uh, Well, let's go to clip six. Let's go to clip six. And I want to say that tonight for me was dispiriting. Democrats got to do better than what we saw tonight. There was nothing I saw tonight that would be able to take Donald Trump out. And I want to see a a, a Democrat in the White House as soon as possible. There was nothing tonight that if you're looking at this thing, you say any of these people are prepared for what Donald Trump is going to do to us. That was Van Jones, and I agree with Van Jones on his political assessments here. And he's not alone, by the way. Al Sharpton also came out on MSNBC, uh, famous race baiter, 
visited Obama's White House however many dozens of times, as treated as a legitimate figure in spite of the fact that he incited literal pogroms in New York, becoming relevant again now, sadly, you know, 20, 30 years later. Sharpton, too, afraid none of these people can go toe-to-toe with Trump. I, again, I, you know, frankly, I agree with their assessment. You have to ask why, though. Why, why is it that they don't believe any of them can compete with Trump? And why would they come out and say this? Could it be that they're trying to create sort of a groundswell on the left for a different candidate to emerge? Could it be maybe Michelle Obama? And we've heard this rumor before, but the Obama team has been awfully quiet. And there are reports out there saying that if Bernie were to seriously challenge and, and potentially be in a position to become the nominee, that Obama would speak out. Could it be that this is all sort of an elaborate ploy, given how weak Biden has been? And remember, Barack Obama would not endorse the odds on favorite in their field. Could it be that this is all about a draft Michelle movement? She didn't want to do it, but then the Democratic Party forced her, and it was her patriotic duty to do so, so that she could once again be proud of America again. And one of my colleagues at The Federalist today has an article, Tristan Justice, has an article about how could it be that the delay in the impeachment is about rigging Iowa against Bernie Sanders, again rigging it against Bernie. Hmm. Why would that be? Well, if Bernie and his fellow senators who are running are forced to be sitting for the impeachment trial, and it looks like it's going to run right up against the start, certainly at a minimum, of the Democratic primary process, including, I believe, the February 3rd Iowa caucuses, he'll be off the campaign trail, taking him off the field. Now, that, that obviously supports Biden. Could it go beyond Biden? Could it go to a Michelle Obama? Incidentally, there's also a caucus change that happened in the rules for Iowa that you might not have heard about. This was in the transom, which is Ben Dominich's great newsletter, Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist. He quotes an article which talks about how, for the first time, I quote, in the history of Iowa's Democratic caucuses, the party will report the raw vote count for each candidate. And because of idiosyncrasies in the caucus process, the person with the most votes at the beginning won't necessarily be the one with the biggest delegate hall at the end. Think of it as Iowa's version of the 2016 Electoral College issue. In Iowa, traditionally, it's the delegates that matter, and party leaders here emphasize that shouldn't change. Ultimately, the presidential primary contest comes down to who gets the most delegates. But the disclosure of two vote tallies and one delegate count on the night of the February 3rd caucuses, a move made to inject more transparency into the caucus process, is threatening to muddle the narrative coming out of Iowa. And here's the real takeaway. Depending on how the numbers are interpreted, there's a scenario in which more than one candidate could claim a win, quote unquote. You see, they're starting to rig the process in all sorts of ways. The question is, is it for Bernie or is it for someone else? And before we go to break... I want to talk just briefly a little bit about impeachment. You know, it sort of infringes upon, in some ways, their entire primary process. It puts a cloud over it. It's obviously intended to put a cloud over the entire Trump presidency. I hate talking about impeachment because I think it's an illegitimate process, both in terms of the procedural way that it's been pushed onto us, imposed on Congress, and imposed upon the American people when... All of these Democrats, including Jerry Nadler and others, you know, during the Clinton impeachment trial, were saying one thing 
uh, now and during these proceedings are saying another. It's not only rigged on the process, but I think it's totally illegitimate on the merits as well. So I really don't like talking about it, and I don't like focusing on it because I don't think it is worthy of our focus and attention because it's not worthy of our American political system, our constitutional republic. But, you know, yesterday the House Democratic managers prayerfully and somberly signed the impeachment articles using approximately 1,776 pens with Nancy Pelosi screaming out, you get a pen and you get a pen and you get a pen. But they were very serious and, and somber, prayerful, thoughtful. And then they had their procession, their little wake as they're in mourning as they went over to the Senate. And of course, you know, of these impeachment managers, Six of them publicly supported impeaching the president before the quote-unquote whistleblower complaint regarding the phone call with the president of Ukraine, Zelensky. You know that this is a ruse. But what is impeachment actually about? What should we be, how should we be thinking about this, given that it's a total charade? Obviously, there are these sort of immediate-term considerations, the political, tactical considerations for the left. You know, this is about paralyzing the Trump agenda in an election year. It's about fundraising. It's about appeasing the extremist progressive base, which is currently ascendant in the Democratic Party and I believe is taking it over. If not, it may have already taken it over in some ways. Potentially forcing the administration or Republicans in both the House and the Senate into making tactical errors. Forcing the administration to produce all sorts of documents that they can, that the Democrats can then portray in the worst possible way and attempt to smear the administration again going into an election year. Maybe most importantly, from a political perspective, forcing Republican senators into making tough votes potentially, delegitimizing President Trump for a second term. What I think the importance of impeachment is is it's the same significance as Kavanaugh. You know, the Kavanaugh hearings were much bigger than Kavanaugh. It was about the nature of our political adversary and the way that they play the game and the rules that they adhere to or don't adhere to. And if it wasn't clear to you then, frankly, if it wasn't clear to you back in the days of Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, the left plays to win at all costs. They'll invoke the Constitution on the one hand, and they'll shred up the Constitution on the other when it suits them. They'll claim that impeachment is a purely political process when their party controls it in the House, and a purely strictly legal process when it ultimately hits the Senate. We're up against a political adversary that wants to destroy us to retain its own power and privilege and grow it. There's no level to which they won't sink. There's no amount of shame to which they won't reach. There's no level. Hypocrisy doesn't matter for them. Remember, since before the start of the Trump presidency, it was resist, resist, resist. And our side doesn't fight the same way, with few exceptions. You know, it's movement conservatives and a, a fraction of a fraction of those in Congress and elsewhere. Trump has shown the way, tactically and strategically, how to fight the left, to fight fire with fire. It's sort of like Soleimani. Soleimani was a game changer because the other side never expected it. Our side needs to act like that on more issues, core issues that are about defending and protecting this constitutional republic that we love. The left will never, ever, ever, ever stop fighting till the day 
Donald Trump is out of office, and then probably after he's out of office, they'll pursue him, and then they'll go after the next Republican and the next one and the next one. Because for them, politics, it's not even religion. It goes beyond religion for them. It's their entire being. They're wholly consumed by it. For them, in their view, it's about good versus evil, and they need to destroy us because we're either evil or stupid. We're seeing this view manifest itself even in the private sector, which is controlled by progressives, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But for now, I want to leave you with a message that impeachment, what it should represent for us is this. This is the nature of the left. We need to fight with the same intensity, with the same rigor, with the same seriousness that they bring to the table because they fight us every single day of every single year, and it's about time we woke up to it. This president has. The entire Republican Party must. This has been Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll be back right after. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is The Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. We only have a couple minutes before my next guest, who I'm very pleased to have on, John Eastman, comes on and joins, joins the program. And before we get to that conversation, I need to provide a little bit of framing for it. Eastman is one of the premier scholars, in my view, when it comes to constitutional matters, in particular dealing with immigration and national sovereignty. And, you know, in our prior segment, we were talking about impeachment and the nature of the Democrats' march, and that they'll fight dirty. They'll fight any which way to win on any grounds they possibly can. And one of the most nefarious ways that they do it is through not even amnesty, but the very fact that non-citizens, and in particular disproportionately illegal aliens, are able to come here and Democrats promote it because it actually impacts the political process even before they potentially all get amnestied at some future point. And I've talked about this before, and it's relatively arcane, but bear with me because it's really significant. We talked about the census and what the census means for political power, for your vote and the votes of every American. The census tells us how many people, and that includes citizens and non-citizens, including millions of illegal aliens, reside in the U.S. And those total population numbers, not just the number of citizens, not just the number of eligible voters and the like, those numbers are what is used actually to determine entire legislative districts. So apportionment of congressional seats. We today count, again, millions of millions of non-citizens in these numbers. And what does that do? Well, a report came out from the Center for Immigration Studies, which believes in restricting immigration numbers, and it showed this. The 2020 census will show that the presence of all illegal of all immigrants, which is naturalized citizens, legal residents and illegal aliens and their U.S. born minor children is responsible for a shift of 26 House seats. 26 House seats. Of the 26 seats that will be lost due to redistricting, due to these total population numbers that come from the census, that includes millions of non-citizens, including illegal aliens, 24 are from states that voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Of states that will gain House seats because of immigration, 19 will go to the solidly Democratic states of California, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Illinois. Texas is the only solid, solidly Republican state that will gain, while Florida is a swing state. So what I want to talk about with John Eastman is how did we get to such a place where non-citizens could so gravely impact the power of your vote, the weight of your vote, and disenfranchise you without even a mass amnesty? 
This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. We'll be up with Professor John Eastman right after this. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And before the break, I talked a little bit about the impact of non-citizens in our census count and how that drastically has swung political power based upon some one study that has come out regarding what non-citizens will do to 2020 population numbers in the census count. And those population numbers translate then into how the electoral map is drawn and basically give Democrats substantial power because mass illegal alien populations, even if they're never amnestied, ultimately swing power to, you guessed it, generally Democratic districts. And I have on the line with me an expert in not only constitutional law generally, but in particular immigration, and he's written and spoken at length about these and other relevant issues. And that's Dr. John Eastman, who's the founding director of the Claremont Institute Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence and a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute. And he also serves as the Henry Salvatore Professor of Law and Community Service at Chapman University's Dale E. Fowler School of Law. Dr. Eastman, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks very much. And sorry that introduction is such a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> not, 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 not a problem at all. And it's a testament uh, to, to your scholarship and your great work. And I want to start in a, a sort of a fundamental question that I think most Americans would find curious if they were aware of it. And that is, why are non-citizens, including millions of legal aliens, counted in our census? And why does that number dictate then how the districts are drawn for House seats across the country? Well, it, it's it's kind of grown up over time with a kind of false understanding of the Constitution. The Constitution says for our census every 10 years, we have to count all persons um, and then, you know, treated uh, slaves as three-fifths of a person. Uh, that was largely designed to minimize uh, the electoral weight of the southern states. Um, and, then, and then excluding Indians not taxed. Um, and, and the point of that last clause is a recognition that there are some people here on our uh, shores within our borders uh, who are not part of our political community, and we're not going to count them in the census because, as the Declaration of Independence sets out, government is based on the consent of the governed. That means the people who form part of the political community are the only ones that are entitled to representation in that political community. Excluding Indians not taxed was the example of people within our borders uh, at the time uh, who were not part of our political community and therefore were not going to be counted because that would skew the representation of those who were entitled to be represented in our in our halls of government. Um, uh, that whether it's the excluding Indians not tax clause or a more limited understanding of person that meant persons who are here and part of our political community, not anybody who happens to be here temporarily visiting would be counted. And that's the only theory that's consistent with the doctrine of consent outlined in the Declaration of Independence. So do we not, in effect today, have foreign interference in our elections writ large by dint of the fact that millions of illegal aliens dictate how much the relative vote of one person living in California is versus another person living in Alabama, let's say? Well, that, that's absolutely true. And let, let me you know, kind of push the, the example here, the hypothetical. Let's suppose you've got a district that has one legal voter and a half a million illegal immigrants or or even temporary visitors who are on student visas who are not eligible to vote that one voter gets to choose a member of congress whereas in the next district over that have a half million citizens 
uh, each one of them gets one one five hundred thousandth of the weight of that vote for that member of Congress. That vote dilution that occurs by counting illegal immigrants, legal immigrants who are not citizens, people who are on temporary visitors, what have you, uh, that really skews and dilutes the vote of those uh, citizens in other districts. One other example on this, and I think it's important. Let's suppose the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles was actually held four years earlier in 1980 when when the census was going on. That brought several million people from around the world to Los Angeles. And if we had counted them just because they were persons who were physically present at the time the census was being conducted, we would have handed Los Angeles County uh, and therefore California a half a dozen new congressional seats as a result of people who were just temporary visitors here. The absurdity of that should explain what's wrong with the with the way we're doing the census now. And of course, amazingly, during the Trump term, we've seen this huge debate. And I sort of noticed that it was going to become an emerging issue when former Attorney General Eric Holder started to write and speak publicly about it in terms of the census citizenship question, which, as our listeners might recall, the Trump administration wanted to simply ask, are you a citizen or not, to the head of households responding to the census, something where there's a long history of asking different derivations of this question. And even on the non-main census, the Obama administration asked a similar question, not asking someone to incriminate themselves, and we can debate whether they should or not be asked really the, tr- the more important question, which is, are you here legally or not? But rather, are you a citizen or not? And the Democrats fought this tooth and nail and ultimately won in the courts on what I would argue are asinine grounds, and I'm sure you probably have a similar view on that, that the question should be kicked out basically because the courts didn't approve of the way that the Trump administration went about incorporating the question. But recently, a study came out, and and part of the reason the Democrats argued against the inclusion of this question was that they said, well, look, non-citizens and presumably illegal aliens will be afraid to contribute to the census if this question is asked because they'll be in some way, shape, or form incriminating themselves. But the census did a test on this, and it recently came out that actually there would not be a statistically significant or meaningful drop-off in responses to this question about census citizenship. So I just want to get your general take on what do you make of that study and the census citizenship debate more broadly? Well, you know, we'd asked about citizenship, not surprisingly, on every census that had been done up until 1950, save for one or two back in the early uh, 1800s. And then since 1950, it was asked on every census on the long form, which went to a uh, a statistically significant, uh, but not entirely uh, every household uh, on the long form census. Uh, it was only the, in the 2010 census that it was dropped from either the regular census or the long form census form uh, during the Obama administration. Now, to be fair, uh, that dropping of it occurred earlier during the Bush administration, but they had moved it to the annual community survey. Uh, But the fact that we're not asking that on the decennial census that the Constitution mandates every 10 years means that people have got this completely uh, crazy notion that our representation ought to be based on non-citizens as well as citizens. And it completely destroys the notion of consent as the basis of our government. Anybody who happens to be here gets a share in the weight of representation, even if they can't vote for that representative. That's absurd. And no other country in the world does that. Uh, and, and in fact, the United Nations some years ago uh, recommended to all member or nations that they ask about citizenship on their census. 
And I thought that the left believed in the UN as the highest body on the in the globe. So uh, it, it, it it's quite <laughs> ironic. I don't right. <laughs> and 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 in the in the next segment, I want to ask you about a similar policy to that, which is the Remain in Mexico policy, which we'll get to in a minute, and what international law would say about that. But I I do think it also is worth noting that it is not only your voting power in effect that can get diluted or artificially bumped as a result of counting non-citizens, but it's also how hundreds of billions of dollars in federal funds are allocated. In a lot of respects, it is really about you getting less representation in some ways than non-citizens getting representation. Well, that's right. And look, I've been a leading proponent of the view that all of these um, grants and aid programs to the states that serve particular constituencies or particular regions rather than furthering the general or national welfare are unconstitutional. Uh, The Article 1, Section 8 clause that allows for spending says spending for the common defense, not the local police force, and the general welfare. That doesn't mean I get to widen, you know, the, the road in my community. Uh, maybe I can participate, have a have an interstate highway system, but I don't get to put palm trees on the center median of my main street because that's not the general welfare, that's the local welfare. And so, I, you know, we, we have for about 80 years now ignored that fundamental limitation on the power of Congress and completely distorted uh, you know, funding mechanisms where we now have a complete disconnect between the taxes raised and the benefits being provided. It used to be if I was going to provide a benefit, I would tax the people that were going to benefit from it, and they could make then a judgment on whether it was worth the taxes to pay for the benefit or not. Now we've got this crazy situation where people are in Rhode Island are paying to widen my road in Long Beach and vice versa, and there's complete disconnect, and it's an unconstitutional one. And it's exacerbated when they're sending money uh, to to provide welfare programs that that inevitably end up in the hands of people who are not even here legally. Uh, And somebody will tell me, well, the, the statutes all prohibit illegal immigrants from having access to these programs. And then you, fo- you do a follow-up question and you ask any single welfare office, do you check on whether somebody applying for the benefits is here legally or not? And they say, no, we're not allowed to do that. <laughs> so, of course, there's a massive amount of fraud on those welfare programs. And the, because the money is flowing and they're creating a constituency uh, for one political party in this country rather than another, which is another dangerous aspect of all of this. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. More with Dr. John Eastman just after this quick break. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. We've been talking with Dr. John Eastman about all things immigration, in particular on the census citizenship question and what that means for the power of your vote and really the broad, disproportionate foreign interference that we see that the left doesn't seem to care about because, of course, in this case, it, it works for them. I mentioned uh, before the break the remain in Mexico policy, and apparently Democrats are planning in the House are planning on probing this policy. Dr. Eastman, can you tell us a little bit about what that policy entails regarding asylum claims and then speak to the legitimacy of it? Well, there's 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 international treaties on this uh, that deal with refugees and uh, the, the, the rule is uh, you're supposed to claim refugee status or seek asylum 
um, as a refugee or somebody who would be politically prosecuted or persecuted in your home country in the first safe country that you arrive in. Um, that's not what's happening uh, with the massive amount of immigration from uh, Central America and South America through Mexico into the United States. Um, they are just tra- uh, bypassing Mexico or the other countries on their route in order to get to the United States, which is a pretty good indication this is not true asylum effort. They're just trying to get to a, 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 a better a, a economy. And I, I don't blame them from trying. The question is whether we were legally obligated to take them. President Trump saying, no, you gotta, you're going to have to ask for asylum in the first country of origin or we're not going to accept you. Now, that means people that were fleeing um, religious or political persecution in Mexico uh, would have a claim for seeking asylum in the United States. But people coming up from Guatemala and uh, Venezuela or Honduras or Nicaragua through Mexico where they could seek asylum there and then bypassing that and seeking it in the United States are leapfrogging this rule. Now, I've not done a deep dive on the application of the rule. There's some indication that maybe you have to have a bilateral agreement in place with the particular country, like we would have to have one with Mexico before that could be triggered. I don't know the answer to that, but it's certainly something that the United States ought to be pursuing vigorously is to enforce this international norm that asylum seekers need to ask for asylum when they get to the first safe place to do it. Lastly, uh, in about a minute and a half or so, Uh, There was a ruling from, I believe, a federal judge in Manhattan putting a temporary halt, uh, sorry, in Maryland, rather, putting (laughs) Freudian slip there, putting a temporary halt on the ability for states, and I believe even smaller jurisdictions than just states, to reject refugees being resettled within their borders by result of the Trump administration executive action on the matter, which makes intuitive sense. If you don't believe that refugees should be resettled in your state, why should you be forced to accept them? But now a judge has said no. Uh, An individual governor, for example, like Governor Abbott in Texas, cannot reject refugees being resettled in their state. Uh, What do you make of the ruling in general and then the problem of nationwide injunctions more broadly? Well, so the ruling in general, the judge starts off, he's, he's wringing his hands, it's melodramatic, he says this violates every norm and it violates this clear text of the statute and whatever. Well, you know, he doesn't ever actually cite this text of the statute. And the text of the statute specifically says uh, that in our resettlement programs, we're supposed to consult with the state and local government officials, uh, and if they don't want the refugees, we need not place them there. Um, the Trump order doesn't doesn't give the state and local government officials an absolute veto, as the judge claimed. Uh, it just says if we don't want them, uh, the United States is not going to force the refugees on them unless the United States determines that it's absolutely necessary. So on both counts, that the statute uh, doesn't involve the state and local governments, the judge is wrong, and that it gives the state and local governments an absolute veto, the judge is wrong. Uh, So I have no doubt that that decision will ultimately be overturned, whether in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals that that supervises the Maryland courts uh, or ultimately in the Supreme Court remains to be seen, but it will eventually be overturned. So so flatly contrary to the statute. now, uh, the, the, the other issue uh, about nationwide injunctions, as you asked, the Supreme Court has already strongly indicated um, that there is a huge problem with a single federal trial judge sitting in Baltimore, Maryland, or in Hawaii, or in San Francisco, 
basically altering the political policy judgments of the elected branch of government, the elected president, uh, by issuing a nationwide injunction. Uh, the, 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 the leftists on the courts who are smart understand the Supreme Court is about to shoot that whole thing down. And so they are modifying their own district court nationwide injunctions to apply only to the particular parties in the case. Uh, but but you still get these outlier judges who just think they can, by a stroke of a pen, become president of the United States and set our immigration policy. It's absolutely outrageous. And uh, I look forward to the Trump administration hopefully fighting this vigorously at the Supreme Court and prevailing. All right, Dr. Eastman, we're going to leave it right there. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on today. Thanks very much, Ben. Take care. And this has been Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. I want to thank you for taking the time and sharing this time with me today. Hope you have a great evening, and we'll be back tomorrow.